The Blueprint 1543 team finished 18 months of qualitative research, summarily called In Search of Theological Scientists, or ISOTs, a planning grant. Five key strategies and 20 specific example projects emerged, all with the goal of activating more progress in a science-engaged theology. This four-part series of podcasts highlights some of the important reflections from leaders in science-engaged theology who we interviewed along the way. We hope you'll enjoy these conversations and get involved. Because there is so much potential for uh, confusion about the common terms that are used, uh, the common ideas, research problems that theologians and scientists have in common, there can also then be a, a degree of defensiveness or, wait a minute, that's our thing, not your thing, or misunderstandings, you know, uh, well-intentioned misunderstandings, uh, talking past each other. Um, there are all kinds of barriers to a nice synthesis of the sciences and theology in our experience and through the experiences of those we've talked to are much reduced. Those, those challenges are reduced if first we can trust each each other, if we can build relationships, if we can feel comfortable with each other enough as scholars, as you know, fellow travelers in all of this, to ask the tough questions, to lay bare our assumptions, to let our own um, working hypotheses and perspectives be uh, inspected by others. But that takes a certain degree of vulnerability and trust that we're all working together to, toward uh, discovering truth, that we have each other's best in mind, um, that we're really caring for each other as colleagues too. So it's, it's our view that in order to make more rapid progress in these areas, a big, thick, healthy layer of relational currency and trust is important. So if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of exploring a research project that Blueprint 1543 conducted. 18 months of qualitative research of doing interviews with theologians, psychological scientists, sociologists, theologically minded philosophers, philosophy of religion folks, and even a few ministers. These are all people who had at least dipped their toes in the world of science-engaged theology, something we think is so important to the future of theology. We like to imagine a world where one day theologians wouldn't even think twice about pulling the tools of, say, psychology in to make their own theology a little more robust and tie it to human experience, which is something that Kristen McCurlin, the theologian we'll be highlighting today, is super concerned about. But before we do that, I thought I would outline again our five strategies that were born out of this research project for encouraging science-engaged theology, for nurturing it. That's one, inspire integrative work. Two, build trust, which was what Justin was just talking about. Three, include scientists and theologians. Four, getting specific. And five, creating opportunities for constructive collaboration. So yeah, today we'll interview Krista McCurlin, who's a theologian who teaches at Cary Baptist University in New Zealand. And her forays into science-engaged theology really started with a healthy dose of relational trust. She's also a theologian that really thinks theology should matter to our lived experience in the real world and make it connect and make it matter. 
I hope you enjoy my conversation with Krista. The first experience I had actually was with the Theopsych seminar from a few years ago, pre-pandemic. And that's where I got to meet Dr. Pamela Epstein-King and just loved her. I think it was her humility, her brilliance, but also her humility, which typically I don't find those go together. And just her willingness to both learn from theologians, but also speak constructively into our theological work. So we were in one of the little breakout rooms together and just hit it off. So then when it came time for me to work on uh, my own grant uh, with John Templeton Foundation, she was just my top choice of somebody I wanted to work with, but it was really based on the relational foundation that we had. And so I don't know if you know Sandage and Brown's book, uh, Relational Integration, but that's kind of their whole premise is you can have all these different paradigms for how you think about how science and faith go together. And those are great conceptually, um, but at the end of the day, if you don't have relationship with scientists, it's actually going to be hard to do good integrative work because we're limited. We're finite beings. That's a beautiful thing, actually, theologically. <laughs> but that means also we need various voices and we need diverse voices and people that are going to ask different questions. So that's what I found with Pamela uh, was just there's a beautiful synergy that you just can't get off the page. So can you speak a little bit specifically to the the topic you were researching from a theological area and then someone's coming in with a different conceptual framework? What was that like? Uh, was it hard to wrap your brain around thinking of things from a different angle or was it easy or you could talk, say, restate if, you know, the relational part made yeah. it easy? Yeah, I think the relational part made it less threatening. So to come in knowing that we approach the same topic from different vantage points, the relationship is what made it okay to say, what did you mean by that? And, and how, where would you start with this? And even this idea kind of of metrics, like I don't find as a theologian, I think in measurability, you know, I'm thinking in often abstraction and yes, it lands in the concrete, but for Pam's work to see it landing in the concrete with these, I mean, she's working with human subjects. She's asking questions. She's doing interview data, uh, qualitative studies. I That's just not a world. Of course, we work in the world of experience, right? But for Pam, that how she engages with experience and is able to, to qualify, quantify, and measure those experiences, especially on the topic of human flourishing. So that was what brought us together. She'd done some work on the image of God. That's the area that I'm very interested in. Um, I'm interested also in this idea of fundamental needs. What do humans need? And needs is very much related to if you have the need satisfied, then you should be flourishing or it should contribute to your flourishing. If it's not satisfied, it should be contributing to your languishing. And, and Pam had done work on adolescent thriving that measured languishing. It measured pro-social aptitudes and languishing kind of deficits. And so we we had different language for coming to these different, the same idea, but different language to come to that project together. And so I would say the relationship is then what allowed us to come into that conversation where we're actually doing a lot of translation work of what do you mean by this, but allowed us to come into that space without being defensive and so that for me, I think as a prerequisite, was a relational prerequisite to have the safety to not understand each other. <laughs> so yes, wrapping my head around it was really hard because I don't, I don't think about the world the way that Pam does. Actually, she and I have a lot of similarity in our overarching kind of 
meta frameworks, but how she engages that meta framework, she wants to measure it in ways that I just would never think about. Like, that's just not the question that keeps me up at night. But I found the value in how she's asking those questions and how she's wanting to measure those things. Because it actually, I found, gave more meat to this abstract concept. It actually allowed it to land in the real world. So yeah, that at least on the area of flourishing and human need, um, I, I found Pam to just be an excellent uh, dialogue partner. Cool. When you became a theologian, how, what did you see as your vocation in terms of what kind of change did you hope to see in the world as a, or to make in the world as a theologian? And has that changed over time for, you know, versus now? Has that mm-hmm. effect that you desire to make, has that changed mm-hmm. over time? Man, that's a beautiful question. So I was actually reflecting on that this week because um, I was, I'm on research leave right now. And so I'm getting a lot of opportunities to speak and to teach. And some of it's a, a bit stressful right now with all the, the things I need to prepare. And I was driving home a couple of nights ago and I was like, you know what, God, this is exactly what I prayed for. Like, this is exactly what I wanted to do as nine-year-old Krista. Like, I wanted to be able to tell people about this Jesus who was my friend. And I also had zero examples of women doing that. So I can't explain how nine-year-old me knew that that was the role I wanted to play in the world and, and, and also the role I felt meant to be on this world to play. And so for me, I guess the way that has changed, it hasn't changed in the nugget of what that has meant, it, but it has changed in the sense of how I frame that now is helping people understand that the gospel actually is good news. <laughs> and that good news, it affects women. Uh, it affects us down to our core. It empowers us. It impe- empowers other marginalized communities. And so when I think about the impact that I want theology to have in the world, it is so located in the human experience. It is so located in our our highs and our lows, our flourishing and our languishing. And if we don't actually engage, and this is where Pam's work was so important for me, if we don't actually engage with actual human experience as theologians, then how are we going to make that kind of impact on the world? So the abstraction, as much as I love living in that world, if you stay in that world, you will not change the world in which you live. So that would be my summation now is I want people to have a more expansive understanding of the goodness of the gospel. If you could rewind your thinking and imagine before coming at the OSAC conference, did you have any preconceived notions of what it would be like to engage science and scientists? Mm -hmm. Did you have some suspicions or fears or just curiosity? If you could just describe your state of mind or any assumptions you had before I'm trying to get kind of a before and after picture. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I mean, grew up Southern Baptist, uh, very conservative, um, Southern upbringing, uh, young earth creationism. If you don't endorse that, then actually you've, you've forfeited the authority of scripture. And therefore, how can you make any truth claims about anything? Like that's a very slippery slope argument, right? Like if you don't accept that, then all these other doctrinal loci are compromised. So it's kind of this domino effect. So actually to your question from earlier of like, what happens if uh, we have scientific data that seems to falsify a theological truth that I've held dear? What then? I mean, that was an actual 
fear of mine. And, and I think, I think I come at that in two ways. One, um, what actually is falsifiability? Like what's the criterion for something to be falsifiable? And are there some theological truths, if you will, uh, that actually can't be falsified? They also can't be proven. <laughs> so this to me is like really where faith comes in. Like, I, I don't really see that there, there could be like, I don't know how you would disprove the Trinity. Like, I don't know what, what metric you could have to disprove that. But when it comes to actual, like, how we live into those doctrines, uh, like this example of, like, intersex persons and how we understand the image of God, well, actually, I do think that that's where scientific evidence can be really helpful for us actually thinking through, then how do we live? How do we press into this? So I think I definitely had a lot of fear But with that fear, as I thought about it more, so that was, if I talk about my gut feeling was fear as I thought about science engaged theology and science and faith. But then as I sat with that gut fear of, okay, what's actually at stake here, I came to find out actually those core theological truths are not what's at stake for me. And that's just for for me as a person of faith and the things that I hold dear that I think are mind-independent realities that I don't think science can disqualify, regardless of what evidence we might we might produce. Th- that helped me kind of, I think, temper some of that, that fearfulness um, in coming into that. And then actually reading actual, you know, scientific claims and, and their studies and be like, oh my gosh, there is so much productive data here that maps onto a mind-dependent reality, the world, (laughs) the world in which we live. And so in that domain, like, again, if our theologies can't comport with that, if they can't be consistent with that, or they can't track with that reality on some level, and also explain where maybe they don't track, because we do have to grapple as well, which this comes up a lot, and this was, again, in my upbringing, was, okay, great, you have all the social scientific evidence saying how humans are, but just because that's how they are doesn't mean that's how they ought to be, and that's where theological claims are supposed to come in, and and I get that. I think, yes, we have to be careful of not turning a description into a prescription, but at the same time, if our prescriptions don't land at all in reality, don't map at all onto our descriptive analyses, then I am concerned about the prescription. Some prescriptions are going to be just eschatological. They are just a hope for the future. There are things that I don't think are going to be realized on this earthly realm, <laughs> in this earthly realm. That And that just is what it is. But I think my fear of all this description and undermining any prescription, I think that was, again, it was giving the baby away with the bathwater. And, and I think the more I got into it. So the fear then kind of gave way. Still, I still have a lot of caution when I'm reading scientists, just like I have a lot of cautions when I'm reading theologians. Like it's the same critical lens that I'm thinking through as what are their biases? What are their agendas when they're coming to this? What are their presuppositions? But I think that's how we should be thinking about anybody that we're reading. So yes, fear, but that's been tempered. Uh, And again, that relational aspect has been what's helped it so much because I actually have a person I can talk to when I'm like, so am I reading this wrong? Am I reading this right? Did I get this theorist wrong? Have you heard of them? Are they are they credible? Um, how do you mean this word? Or how did you think this theorist means that word? So anyway, so the relational actually is what helped address the fear that I came into the conversation with. But I, I would say I still, I still, 
I can still get nervous in these conversations. But because I've had that nervousness spoken to so directly in these relationships, it doesn't stop me from wanting to have more of them. You've already given us some details and just the beautiful story of your interactions with Dr. Pam King. But do you think you could just say a little bit more about the qualities of the science collaborator relationships that you've encountered that just that really make them work? What about those people make them ideal for um, for collaboration with with the theological side? Well, the qualities that I've experienced in people like Pam has definitely been humility as the number one, um, but also their expertise. Like they they need to be great at what they do. And and I think one thing I also like about like when I looked, for instance, at Pam's publication record, right? How many projects she's done with other people. I remember Justin Barrett saying, gosh, theologians don't do a ton of collaboration. <laughs> and and that struck me. That really stayed with me, actually, since that theopsych seminar of like, how could we do that more often? He also made a statement that I thought was really important that feeds into this conversation. He was like, it's very common for scientists to talk in their footnotes that, hey, my mind has changed on this. It's changed in these ways. Like, I, I don't think I got this right in the last publication. And here's where I'm moving forward. He's like, I don't see theologians doing that. And so I think, one, we need for our scientific collaborators that we need them to have humility. But I think it goes both ways. <laughs> and we as theologians need to extend that same humility, the same awareness of our finitude and our limitation that we don't know at all, that we are, as Calvin talks about, you know, we are, we're doing our best, but it's baby talk, right? When we're talking about who God is at best, it, we're getting a, a vowel out. And of course, I think that is to God's good pleasure. But it is, oh man, I, I do think when we see God face to face, we're just, well, one, we're not going to be able to pick ourselves off the floor for about a millennia. But then when we finally do it, we're like, oh my gosh, I was, I was way off. Such a partial truth, right? That we are engaging with. And so I think theologians being more uh, humble in that as we come into these conversations. But in terms of our scientific collaborators, that humility, ability to listen well. So that will be, I think, comes downstream of that humility because it is like I could say the word as a theologian, autonomy, and it will cause hackles to raise. I say that word for a positive psychologist, for instance, it's like, well, of course, that's a, we would measure autonomy to, to see about human flourishing. That doesn't mean you are radically independent from others. It doesn't mean it's the root of the primal sin. Like, it just means agency in a lot of cases. It means I'm not coerced in my actions. So you need people that have the humility and then the patience to listen and to instead of immediately jumping to conclusions of, ah, no, that's wrong, say, oh, well, actually, we use that word in a different way or it holds this nuance for us. So I think, honestly, if you have those those three things, humility, patience, and kind of an ability to listen, which comes together, oh, you can have such fruitful dialogue um, and see your, your disciplines, I think, cross-pollinate in their fruitfulness. What follows here is a little bonus segment from my conversation with Krista. 
I asked Krista about a conference that came out of her research from her science-engaged theology research. She put on a conference called Flourish about the science and theology of human flourishing with her university. And I expected her to tell me about the content, about what kind of presentations were given, what kind of new ideas came out of that. But she talked extensively about the type of care that went into the planning and the unexpected things that happen and the practical things she did to make everyone feel included and comfortable at the conference. And I thought it was a really meaningful example of Science Engaged Theology in action. So I thought I would include it here. I kind of just wanted to ask you a little bit about what you saw happen at your conference. What was the name of your conference that you helped Ah. put on? Um, Yeah, Flourish. Um, It was just called Flourish, right? Yeah, and like the good news of science-engaged theology, something like that. Because again, trying to expand that good news idea. Great. What were some of the highlights of that conference? And what, like content-wise, what were some real treats or things that surprised Mm -hmm. you or ways that lit you up? Or what ways did you see people engaging this intersection that were just really inspirational, just Mm. whatever angle you want to take that at. Cool. No, that's great. So given that we had a couple of years to plan that conference, um, what I loved in like the planning phase was that our metric, our rubric even, for thinking about every decision, I mean, down to the food, to the venue, to the, the speakers, to the order of the agenda, everything, the question was, Will this contribute to participant flourishing? And not just the participant that's often our modal type of an academic conference, right? Of the older white male academic. (laughs) We were thinking, if we have people who are neurodiverse, if we have people who are undergraduate women, if we have people who are real estate agents who just were invited here off the street by their friend, which we had at this conference, (laughs) How, how would this speak to them? How Not necessarily that every single bit of content would resonate with that person. That's an impossible bar. But that they could walk away being encouraged on how they could flourish more fully. So, for instance, when we thought about people that might just want to doodle during the seminars, right? One, it wasn't all rows of seating, all facing forward. It was tables with brown paper on them and different kinds of coloring too. Some people like markers, some people like crayons and colored pencils. So just variety in that. Play-Doh. We had Play-Doh on every table and the stuff that people created while the seminars were going on, it was stunning. I mean, so much creativity. Another thing, and this was from Joanna Leidenhog, because of her work in autism, especially, and theology, neurodiversity and theology, we'd asked her, and she'd given us some resources before the conference, like, how could we make this a more accessible conference to folks that might just have um, a sensitivity toward overstimulation? Because that's so much of these conferences, right? You're packing so much into short time periods, how do we kind of account for that? And she was like, oh, there's these um, kind of noise suppressing like earbuds you can get. And they just lower the, the noise level and help people focus in. So we just had one on every table. We had 17 tables. We were out within the first hour, people grabbing those and using them throughout the conference. And then I got feedback from folks after the conference saying, 
I, I had never even tried those before, but the fact that they were on the table, there was no stigma. I just tried them and I was able to focus like I've never focused before. And then folks that came in that knew they were more neurodiverse, they went straight to those and use them. We had a quiet space in the back that was lower stimulus so where people could just get away if they needed to step away from folks. It was that kind of intentionality. And then also thinking through, and this comes from also some of my advocacy work for women in theological spaces, is our tagline for Logia, an organization that I lead, is called, our tagline is, you can be what you can see. So thinking intentionally about our optics. Um, so, I mean, the fact that our keynote speakers were more women than men. Our breakout sessions, same. Um, if we had presenters who were men, then having a female chair, someone that could also kind of curate that space. But just the practice of hearing um, even a different pitched voice consistently, how important that is. Having a panel on women thriving in the academy and in the church. So just trying to think through what our content was as well, but this is the optics of who was delivering that content. And then in terms of the content itself, we had, you know, breakout sessions, which that that ranged a whole gamut of people who some were professionals, the postdoc on this project. She, her office mate, who is also the administrator for the grant, a Kenyan woman who is outrageously competent as an HR specialist. Well, the two of them, because they shared an office and and the postdoc was going to be presenting at this conference anyways, they were like, well, what if we presented together on like your experience of moving to New Zealand and and seeing this phenomenon called tall poppy syndrome? Because that was so foreign to Gathoni, our, our Kenyan grant administrator. Whereas for the postdoc, Rebecca, she was like, this is just the water we swim in. I've never really thought to examine it in these ways. And so the two of them, prepared a paper and did this breakout session. And I loved that because again, we, we are such gatekeepers in the academic space of who's allowed to say what, what letters do you need to have after your name to be rendered credible? When in fact, often it's our experiences and whether or not you have letters after your name or not, we are speaking out of our experiences but we've we've codified certain experiences as legitimate and others as illegitimate. And so to see these two women working on this paper, one who, you know, is newer to theology as her postdoc, she'd done science. That's what her uh, her doctorate was on. It was in, I think, health sciences at the University of Oxford, that, the postdoc for the project. And then a Kenyan woman who has no theological background, but talking about this phenomenon of tall poppy. It was seeing experiences like that that gave, again, thinking through access. Um, again, that's a flourishing metric for me of, of who's allowed to speak, who's allowed to be heard in these spaces. And so, so the breakout papers were, they were diverse. Many of them were collaborative, where you also, not just in, in, in their case, Rebecca and Gathonis, but others had a lot of uh, older, kind of more established academics working with younger emerging academics and producing papers that'll then get published. Um, some of them will in our Pacific Journal of Logical Research coming out this next year. So it's just, it was cool to see that kind of collaboration. And then uh, similarly in our keynotes. So for instance, Joanna Leidenhog and Pam King wrote a paper together thinking about how their work could collide and, and kind of challenge each other, but then also bring out some new novel approaches to thinking about neurodiverse flourishing. So those will be some of the highlights. The last highlight I'll mention that I had not ever seen at a conference um, as someone raised in the United States was um, 
being welcomed into the conference center by um, folks from the First Nations in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So actually being welcomed there to say, hey, we, we bless you into this space and trying to be more about flourishing. It modeled this idea that flourishing is not just about what we're doing in a two-day conference, but thinking about the actual land that we're on, who's been there before us. And then they basically blessed us as we concluded the conference. Um, and so that was something else that I just, again, in an academic space had not really seen. And, and I think, again, if we're going to do theology of flourishing, it can't just be anthropocentric. It has to include the entire created order. And so to be able to see that done, again, in a partial way, but a way that was trying to move the needle, it was quite powerful. That was so fun to listen to, Krista. I'm so happy you shared all that. <laughs> um, I love just the equity and inclusion that you did in such like really practical ways. And the like doing a conference on a topic like flourishing, but then like being attentive to people's flourishing in real time mm. not just talking about it but doing it that's really mm. super wonderful um i um i hope you get to do a lot more events like that sounds like you're good at it any other points you wanted to make or any other thoughts you thought about sharing oh i guess one thing i would want to say it's been really cool that i think one of the reasons i was able to do the conference the way that i was is because i'm at an institution that is seeking to do integrative theology. So it's something we're working on with our undergraduate students, like the value of qualitative research, um, also the value of quantitative research, but like going through ethics approval processes, that that's actually for our students in their senior year, their capstone project. We encourage them to be getting into real world data. And if that data doesn't exist, to be a part of producing it. And of course, it's in a small way, right? For undergrads, we're not trying to have them do a whole doctoral dissertation. But we encourage that for our students going on to do master's projects. And then we're partnered with Auckland University, Auckland Unitech, something. I don't know. But some people can do their doctorates along that same line. So I think that's maybe something else that might not be on the surface as evident if we're talking about the, the ideal of doing science-engaged theology or science-aware theology, however we frame that that sometimes that pushes against our social norms within our academic settings. Cause sometimes we get pushed back on, of, Oh, well, that's just applied theology. And it's like diminished in its value because it's seen as too practical. And I think that actually, if we're going to talk about values, I think institutional values that I think get in the way of successful collaboration between scientists and theologians. I think some of it is, again, that concrete abstract division where we've really prioritized the abstract at the exclusion of the concrete. And that if we get into that domain too much, if we're not just talking pure Trinity stuff or pure Christology or pure pneumatology, which what does that even mean? Because all that's mediated, right? It's all mediated through our experience and through the experience of biblical writers. Like, it's just absurd that we think as mind-dependent creatures, we can postulate about a mind-independent reality in a vacuum. And again, most people, we know that. We say in, in, in writing and in print, we know we can't do that, but we keep doing it. And I find that that's actually a subtext, that there is a reservation to engage some of these qualitative sciences because I think it's, see, it's seen as kind of less pure. I don't know what language to put to it, but it somehow taints 
the pure theology that we're doing. And I think we need to move closer to the idea that all theology is contextual. That doesn't mean theology is relative. And I find that relative and contextual get conflated in really problematic ways. So to be at an institution that one is valuing the the practical and the the concrete. I think that's really important. And and along with that, because the relationship is so important, and we we're working on seeing that done at Cary, those are not efficient. So the other value that I think we have to push against is efficiency. And I say back to Justin Barrett's point that theologians do not collaborate very often having now collaborated much more since he kind of threw that gauntlet down, it is hard. It is more time consuming. It is less comfortable. But I will also say, I think it produces better theology. So I wanted to name some of those values that I think actually obstruct the kind of collaboration that Blueprint 1543 is trying to get at. I'm so glad you did. That was really great. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Cool. for listening to this series on In Search of Theological Scientists or ISOTs. You can learn more on our website, blueprint1543.org or theologicalscientist.com. This project was funded by a generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect necessarily those of the John Templeton Foundation. And links to more info about Krista's Flourish Conference can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.